0: Hello, this is Paul Sachs and I'm the editor in chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases. And today I'm delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Paul Farmer. Dr. Farmer is the Cotrones University Professor of Global Health and Social Medicine, at Harvard Medical School. He's the chief of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine. He's the founder of Partners in Health. And he is also, I should say, a longtime friend and colleague. I knew him before he was famous. I can say that right now. Uh, Paul, delighted that you're joining us today.
1: It's great to be here, Paul. Thank you.
0: Paul, I heard you speak last week about some recent work that you and your group are doing in Western Africa surrounding the Ebola epidemic. And I was wondering if you could take us back. When you first heard that this was going on in Western Africa, what were your first thoughts?
1: Well, my first thoughts were, I sure hope this stopped like the previous 24 outbreaks have been. But I had occasion to go there actually to a meeting with uh, some medical colleagues on surgical care and resource poor settings. And once there in Freetown, Sierra Leone, it looked pretty clear that this would not be stopped in short order um, because there was so much person-to-person spread going on in towns, cities, and healthcare institutions. That was the first time it dawned on on me. I'm ashamed to say that this was not going to be your average Ebola outbreak.
0: At the beginning, we heard a lot of reassurance that it was not going to be that big a deal. And in hindsight, can you sort of imagine why that might have been the case? Why in, in some ways, even us smart infectious disease doctors and epidemiologists didn't get it right?
1: I think part of it was an effort to calm folks down and maybe prevent some of the stigma that gets associated with Ebola. I mean, that's just speculation but uh, because it's hard to imagine why by the time it reached towns and cities that we should be too calm about it. And it has, of course, always affected caregivers in every outbreak. And those caregivers are sometimes uh, formally trained like we are, doctors and nurses, and sometimes it's your mom or your sister.
0: You mentioned about the panic. And then eventually, of course, it went from probably people ignoring it to people overreacting to the likelihood that they themselves are in danger. And I sort of Wonder, what do you think we should do to get that back in balance? To listen to the science and also not to overreact or underreact.
1: I think a big part of it is, as you said, to listen to the science, to listen to the evidence we have on transmission and to make sure the infectious disease community, but also the medical community more broadly understands how this disease is transmitted and how it's not transmitted. It's not unreasonable to worry about things like environmental contamination of surfaces, but it's also not been shown to be the case. You know, and it takes a while to learn these things and disseminate them widely within the profession. So that's the least we can do. Another is to really focus on where the epidemic is real, which is West Africa, and to focus our attention there and to make sure that they have the staff and stuff and systems they need to fight the epidemic. And that's going to require, for sure, groups like IDSA and, and other American medical associations to contribute so the other
0: day paul i was taking an uber car here in boston and by the way i don't get paid by them for saying that and the guy uh, who was driving the car he says you know you look just like dr paul farmer and i was very flattered because people sometimes (laughs) say that to me and then he said to me don't you think paul farmer should stay out of western africa because we need him to help people elsewhere and i don't want him to get sick and die So so if I hear that, you must hear stuff like that all the time.
1: Well, I'm happy to tell you that today is day 21 after my last uh, (laughs) time in Liberia, so at least I don't have to have people worrying about whether or not I need to be shut up. I never did. First of all, that's a very kind thing for someone to say. All of us who are trying to help stop this epidemic and also to reduce the case fatality rate, we are appropriately frightened and also taking all of the precautions we need to. I intend to be involved in a completely uh, safe and productive way, and Partners in Health has grown a lot, and I think we have a lot of capacity on the staffing side and some knowledge of the systems as well. So it's not optional for a group like Partners in Health to not be involved. And I think we'll also um, find reasonable ways and meaningful ways to bring in many of our colleagues in academic medicine and, and nursing above all so I'm gonna do my bit and very safely and if you see the uber car driver again reassure him I'm fine and grateful for his concern
0: and do you get paid by now? Uh
1: yes I'm a paid spokesman for a number of car <laughs> services
0: <laughs> Paul I have another question for you and this is kind of a challenging one based on my intimate knowledge of your biography you once yourself had a very severe infectious disease And, you know, maybe that was just the folly of youth, but it was a preventable one. You want to tell us a little bit about that and maybe how you've learned from it?
1: Yeah, well, thanks a lot, Paul, for bringing my uh, private medical history to the attention of my colleagues. But yes, I had hepatitis A, and it was entirely preventable. And when I look at the AST results of some of the Ebola patients we've seen, they're often as high as 1,000. Well, mine was a lot higher than that, so it was a very sobering lesson. One of the things that we try to do more and more in our work is education about primary and secondary prevention, and I think that's what we're hoping for now with Ebola vaccine, that we're going to have a vaccine that works and that we're going to help make it available to those who need it, as I should have done with hepatitis A. I hope that was appropriately contrite, Paul.
0: So the folly of youth, and now you've matured and learned something.
1: Well, you know, there is a delusion that you have when you're in your 20s that you're going to be around forever. That's long since been beaten out of me. And, uh, you know, that's a major part of what we do in our work because most of the clinicians I work with, whether nurses or doctors, are younger than I. And we also see a huge army of people interested in this work as compared to when you and I were in, in medical school, yes, 30 years ago. So I do think that's another part of our job to make sure and keep our health care providers safe. In fact, Ebola is as urgent a reminder as any that providing supportive care safely is not trivial in an epidemic like this. It is the way that we will save more patients, those who fall ill. Obviously, we want to prevent the illness, stop it in its tracks. But for those who fall ill, the care needs to be aggressive fluid resuscitation and often electrolyte replacement. There's a very strong component of vomiting and a massive diarrhea in this outbreak in any case, and it's not going to be possible just to give people oral rehydration in many of these cases.
0: What you're saying is that you're going to try to do the same thing about bringing developed world technologies to Ebola treatment that you did for tuberculosis and HIV. And I have to say it's tremendous to hear that you have a lot of people interested in doing that because it is not going to be easy.
1: The logistics are going to be very difficult. That said, the main challenge right now to drop case fatality rate from sometimes 80 to 90% is probably fluid resuscitation and we know that some of the most reliable ways to do that are with better access. What has happened in places like Emory is that they've had one-to-one nursing. They put a lot of effort on good access, and how would you roll out a complex health intervention like this? Indeed, that was the subject of our discussion on my first trip to Sierra Leone in May, is how would we make surgical care available? And there are equally challenging, in fact, more challenging logistic and staffing challenges for surgical care. But I've no doubt that it can be done.
0: You know, one thing, you've had the chance now to see some survivors.
1: Right. We've seen a lot of survivors. Unfortunately, they've been mostly very young people. I mean, you know, if you're my age and get Ebola, your chances are very slim. But with proper rehydration and earlier diagnosis, frankly, because the higher the viral load, the higher the mortality for a population that's poorly nourished, they don't have the reserve, certainly if they're vomiting and have diarrhea, and the overall good health status that some of these younger people have had have survived. So we've really got to push nature along as we always do, or push back on nature if we're looking at it from the microbes' point of view, and make sure patients are rehydrated, have the right electrolyte balance, and better nutrition. I think we're going to see a really sharp decline in case fatality.
0: Have the survivors been able to communicate to you, uh, either through an interpreter or directly, what the experience was like?
1: Yes. One of the funny things is many of them also speak some variant of the Queen's English, if I have to joke around a little <laughs> bit. And obviously, it's in some ways a better conversation if it's with a translator. But I've spoken to many of them and heard about their experiences um, and also just listening to those experiences, how they get sick, what happened to the rest of their family. You know, very, very grueling stories to hear. But each one of the survivors had suggestions about how to make this a less miserable and probably a more survivable experience. Partners in Health has hired most of the survivors that we've spoken with if they uh, were interested in working with us. And if there's stigma around Ebola, it will be harder for them to get jobs. So this is one of the traditional roles, I'd say, of PIH, is also to work with those most directly affected and bring them into the work.
0: Tell me a little bit about your sort of first steps for your group once they land, uh, either in Sierra Leone or Liberia. Where where are you exactly these days?
1: Well, we're already there. Um, we're already working there. We were lucky enough to partner with community-based organizations, community health organizations that have been working on the ground in both those countries for the better part of a decade. We've been working with them. Now, so the first step for us is pretty invariably to work with the local health authorities. The Ministry of Health is the term, as you know, used in most of these countries. And we've already done that. We've already been invited to work on two major areas. One is to improve the quality of clinical care by providing that clinical care directly in uh, Ebola treatment units or Ebola care centers that are much more peripheral and closer to where people live. The other major task is to open up the primary health care because one of the very tragic things that's happened over the past few months is that at least in Liberia and Sierra Leone, if not in Guinea as well, the health systems have collapsed. So the major victims of Ebola don't have Ebola at all. They have obstructed labor, they have malaria or acute pneumonia, or they've been injured you know, in an accident. So that's been one of the biggest challenges. Also, the medical and nursing schools have been closed. They may have been small, but at least they had them. We've got to get those open as well. And that's where our ties with academic medicine, I hope, will prove useful, as they have in Haiti and Rwanda.
0: Paul, the outbreak briefly spread to Nigeria. Any ideas why it did not take off there and what we can learn from that?
1: Well, right, first of all, the amount of staff stuff and systems just the numbers mobilized around what was initially a single case were quite significant compared to Liberia, Sierra Leone and even Guinea. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of doctors, nurses and community health workers and many millions of dollars spent on contact tracing and also, you know, a, a care system that was better able to provide clinical care. I mean, there were still unacceptably high levels of fatality, but uh, it's really the public health response that can take credit for stopping Ebola in Nigeria. I would add that, you know, you can imagine the difference between taking care of a patient in a Ebola treatment unit without reliable electricity And certainly, no air conditioning, it's a tent, really, and a modern hospital with air conditioning. It is very difficult to tolerate the personal protective equipment, the hazmat-type suits in the heat. It's also just physically harder. And again, if you don't have staff to spell you, uh, it's harder clinically. And if you don't have a large number of community health workers, you just can't do that kind of contact tracing.
0: Well, Paul, I just want to give you a chance to say uh, last few things if you want
1: this one thing. I know that this is still controversial, but I think that the infectious disease community ought to be thinking hard about what should the case fatality rate be if our care um, is supportive care is better. The idea that it is hopeless uh, is part of the problem, both in terms of recruiting people into the fight, including people from those countries, but also yeah, I think that's leading too many folks to give up on the clinical care part of it, which is, after all, our job. And I think you'll think of some of the very least chagrin that we felt when we were younger and taking care of patients with HIV disease when it wasn't clear what was going on and, and there wasn't specific therapy. But once people got good prophylaxis, for example, for PCP or prompt diagnosis of TB or on a bacterial OI, There was significant improvement in in what happened in hospitals and clinics and a lot of suffering averted. And I think that's one of the things that our community should focus on. We should be saving most of these people and we can do it with the right kind of staff stuff and systems. We can do it safely with the right space. So the more we can get our colleagues to be cheering this on and to participate in it, the better.
0: Yeah. So, you know, really, we need to upgrade our view of what supportive care is.
1: Amen. We need the other kind of supportive care as well, meaning hand-holding, psychosocial support, etc., but that is never going to replace the kind of aggressive fluid resuscitation that people with such large losses due to diarrhea and vomiting will need. I mean, 10 liters of effluent in a day, that and third spacing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in a setting of poor nutrition and then hyponatremia, hypocalcemia, and hypokalemia, bad enough to cause arrhythmias, we know what needs to be done and we know the staff, including nursing, that is required to help us do it. So. Uh, let's upgrade our aspirations, and I, I do believe that a lot of that upgrading of aspirations will come from clinical medicine.
0: Well, Paul, listen, I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me today, and, and you know we are all rooting for you.
1: Thanks so much, Paul. It's a pleasure. and look forward to giving you an update, which I hope will have some good news in it in a month or two.
0: Great. This has been a discussion with Dr. Paul Farmer from Harvard Medical School Partners in Health. Thank you very much for listening.